Amen. As you take your seat, you can turn with us to Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. And I want you to think back to when you were 13. Or maybe if you're not there yet, think forward to when you were 13. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were 13? I mean, did you want to be a famous baseball player, a ballerina? Did you want to be an astronaut? I actually read recently that the number one desire of the high school students when they grow up is to be a YouTube star followed only closely by an Instagram influencer. So I'm not sure what type of commentary that is on the future state of our society, but what did you want to be when you were 13? For Natalie Gilbert, she wanted to be a Broadway star. Dreamed about being on Broadway, and she was in all of her school plays. And in the city of Portland, they were running a special competition for kids who had performed in the performing arts in their middle and high school. And they were doing a contest where you could sing the national anthem, and if they chose you, you would have the opportunity to sing the national anthem at one of the Portland Trailblazers games. But not just any game. You would sing at game three of the Western Conference semifinals, which they were playing the Dallas Mavericks. And Natalie, she won. I mean, this was her moment. This was her chance. And then that morning, she woke up with a, a terrible fever and was shaking, and they just didn't know if it was just kind of nerves or what to do, but the show must go on. So she pushed through and then went to the court and they kind of rolled out this life-size or this American flag, the size of the court and their fireworks going off and she starts to sing. And as she's singing, her mind starts to wonder a touch. And then she gets to where she should say starlight, but actually says twilight. And then she kind of pauses because she's like, no, wait, that's, that's not the right word. And then her mind starts to scramble and for nine eternal seconds, there's silence. And then out of nowhere comes an arm, and you can actually watch what happens. Roll it, Liz. To the Trailblazers at the moment, that's Hall of Fame point guard Mo Cheeks, Maurice Cheeks. And uh, you know, after the game, they hailed it as that was Mo Cheeks' greatest assist. And what did, what did we see him do? What did he do there? You know, in that moment that in, could have been the worst moment of her life, the most embarrassing moment of her life, he comes in and extends an arm of grace and lifts her up. And why is it so moving? Like, why did it move you when you watched? And why did every, all 20,000 people stand with her to sing? Because you see the moment where you want to lift someone up when what could be, you know, their, their worst moment. And actually, we're going to see something really similar in Matthew chapter 9. We have two characters that are actually entering into an experience that could be the worst moment of their life. And then it somewhat unexpectedly comes a hand that's going to lift them up. And so let's watch. So we'll turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 18 through 26. And as he was telling them these things, Suddenly, one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and saw her and said, Have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well at that moment. 
And when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd lamenting loudly. And he said, leave, because the girl is not dead, but she's asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout the whole area. So ever since January, we've been going through Mar uh, Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. And what Matthew does in this section is gives us a full composite picture of the salvation that Jesus brings. And he puts it in certain cycles. He, he organizes in such a way where you can see Jesus bringing salvation over the physical illnesses that can break us over seasons or times or situations of utter helplessness that can break us. And then here in this final cycle, he's drawing us under life under the shadow of death. We're all under death's shadow. And here we have two characters, one who has died and another one whose life has been like a living death for 12 years. Life under the shadow. You know, Natalie was asked about those nine seconds, what it was like. And she said, I felt like I had fallen into a black hole and couldn't get out. So you imagine, you know, here, what in essence, what Matthew's showing us is that we all, in essence, are under this darkness, this shadow, and it hangs over everyone. So how do we get out? And so what I want us to see as we walk through this, first thing is that life under the shadow at some point will push you to Jesus. When you go to him, he's going to surprise you. He will demand something of you that'll be really surprising. But what you'll actually get will be more than anything you ever could imagine. So we'll kind of walk through that progression. So first, let's think about how life under the shadow will push us or drive us to Jesus. And we can see this in both characters. You know, at, on the surface, these are two polar opposite characters. Now, both Luke and Mark also give us details and give us a little different color about this story. So I'll be pulling details from the other Gospels to kind of flesh it out a little bit. And so one of the things, like Mark tells us, he tells us his name, that he wasn't just a leader. His name was Jairus. And so who's Jairus? He's the ruler of the synagogue. So ruler, he's administrator, he's wealthy. It's interesting that Matthew will put in chapter 8 the centurion, who is probably the most influential and powerful, in essence, Gentile in the town, and then Jairus, who's probably the, the wealthiest, most powerful, influential uh, uh, Jewish man in the town, these two characters. So in one sense, Jairus is at the very top of the social ladder. And yet he's driven. And then the woman, who is she? Uh, Mark also tells us that she had had this chronic blood flow for 12 years, and she had spent all she had, could not get any better, had, had spent everything, and in essence was destitute. So she's alone at the bottom of the social spectrum. On the outside, they look completely different. And yet both of them are experiencing life under the shadow and then driven. It pushes them towards Jesus. What is it that Jairus experienced? What drove him to Jesus? was a sudden loss of someone that he loves. You know, many children will bury their parents, but no parent should ever bury their child. And so here he finds himself in a situation that he can't, he can't overcome. I mean, all of his wealth, all of his power, all of his accomplishments, none of that helped them now. I cannot imagine what it would have been like for him as a father to hear the cries of his 12-year-old daughter Daddy, help me. Help me. It hurts. Help me. And he cannot do anything about it. What drives him to Jesus is his utter sense of watching someone he loves deteriorate and break down, and there's nothing he can do. 
You think life under the shadow, at, at some point, every one of us will be there. And I wonder, I wonder if one of the hardest things in life is not necessarily experiencing suffering yourself, but it's watching someone you love suffer and you're helpless to help them. And it can happen physically, like him, he's watching his daughter physically suffer and there's nothing he can do. It can happen kind of morally, where you watch people you love make moral decisions that you know are taking them down a path that's gonna bring destruction in their life and you're helpless, you can't stop them. It can happen emotionally, where people slide into the darkness and it seems there's nothing you can say, there's no words of light that can penetrate and you just feel helpless. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like that nine seconds, how long it was for Natalie? How long do you think it was for her dad and mom? You know, to watch somebody and you're helpless. That's where Jairus was, and that drove him to Jesus. But then think about what drove her. You know, the long, slow, steady, silent suffering, carrying this burden that nobody could see or nobody could know, the continual, long suffering, suffering silently. You know, the blood flow for 12 years, and as we saw when we looked in the first part of Matthew chapter 8 of the man who was unclean, and Jesus brings him in. And part of the symbolism here, it's symbolic that when the blood, so the monthly cycle for the woman makes her unclean because it symbolizes life flowing out of you. So the blood represents life, and when it flows out of you, it's symbolic that we're under the shadow of death and life is flowing away from you. And what that meant is while it was happening, she would have been unclean. She would have had to socially distance. She would have had to isolate herself. And if you can imagine, if some of you are over it after having to do it for a year, could you imagine what it was like for 12 years? She would have to do this, this long, slow suffering. I just wonder, can you sympathize? I mean, what she's experienced is that slow, steady, flowing away of life. I mean, can you sympathize? Maybe you can understand what it's like to love someone and for 12 years it's just like the love just flows away. Or to have joy in something and you began with such joy in life and the more life just kind of beats you up, their joy just slowly ebbs away. And that's what she had experienced. So on the surface, they look so different. But in reality, there's, they had both been driven to Jesus by life under the shadow. But now look what happens when they go to him. Because when they actually go to him, it's pretty surprising what he does. So Jairus comes to Jesus, and in verse 18, he says, my daughter has died. Or it's an interesting construction, because you compare it with some of the others, literally translated, my daughter's done. She's at the end. She's come to the end. And then come and lay your hand on her, and she'll rise. She'll live. So he goes to Jesus. But now what does Jesus do? Jesus actually delays. You see, he really comes out in Mark. So Jesus says, all right, I'll come with you. And he starts walking. There's this huge crowd that are following, maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000, maybe 10,000 people following, pushing. And then in the middle of the crowd, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about who touched you? Look at all these people. What do you mean who touched me? He said, nope, somebody touched me. And can you imagine being Jairus at that moment? Like you're saying, come on, hurry up, hurry up. You know, it's like the studies that say what's the greatest determination of whether you live after an emergency accident is whether or not you're within 45 minutes of an ER. It's how quick can you get there. And Jesus is walking, and he stops. And Jerry's like, who touched you? Who cares? Keep going. And in every one of these stories, what Jesus is doing, he's trying to teach them something. What is he trying to teach him? I mean, if I were you med students, 
You think, all right, what would Jesus do? Maybe when you're doing your ER rotation, don't do what Jesus would do. Because he ignores the acute trauma that's happening for a chronic illness that had been going on for 12 years. Why? And I think one of the things he's going to teach Jerry is that actually is he's going to have to learn to trust him in the delay. Jarius can't put Jesus on Jarius's timetable. He's going to delay. He can't be hurried. He can't be rushed. And that's the reality. Jesus has promised to do something, but that promise is going to work itself out in a way that is, would be surprising to Jarius. And there's just some things that can't be hurried. You know, and one of the challenges that Jarius will have, and many of us will have, is not to get defeated by the delay. Things aren't coming at the pace you wanted. Maybe you thought you'd be farther along at this point in life or in your career or with your family. Don't get defeated by the delay. You know, growth in grace, Cynthia teased me all my illustrations turn back to food somehow, but growth in grace is very much like barbecue. You can kind of laugh at like fast food barbecue because there's no such thing. There's no such thing as fast food barbecue. It, it takes a long time to cook. If it's fast, it's not real barbecue. It's slow. Some things can't be rushed. And growth and grace, maturity, many of these things are just slow in coming. Jarius has to learn to get on Jesus' timetable. But then notice what the woman, what does he demand of her? Now, when Jesus stops the crowd and says, who touched me? You know, she's in this, this massive crowd, and he actually demands that she come forward and make a public confession of what she needs and what she has done, that she touched him and why. It's like, why would Jesus do that? I mean, here's this one, this trembling, shy, fearful woman. Why would he make her do that? You know, one of my favorite stories that illustrates the different personalities of our two boys. Uh, we have a four-year-old and three-year-old, and our four-year-old is very outgoing and we'll be walking one day, we were walking around the lake one night and there was this big crowd of people that he didn't recognize and he just romps right up to him and says hello my name is Benjamin I go to school over here my teacher is Mrs. Chow and he just starts rolling telling them all about his life and introducing himself and then he turns around and looks at his brother and he said and that's my brother Sam he just turned three and then the whole crowd turns and looks at Sam and Sam freezes his eyes get big and then he starts to shuffle off the sidewalk, and then he plunges his head into the sawgrass, hoping that he'll become invisible. <laughs> and I went in that moment where Jesus stops everything, started looking at who touched me. Everybody starts looking. I wonder if she panicked, froze, wanted to become invisible. Why does Jesus demand that she make a public confession of what she needed and what she received? And it's because what she actually wanted is she, in essence, wanted to do like a healing and run, you know, touch and go. But there's actually no experience in his power without publicly confessing and identifying with his cause and his people. It's one of the reasons we celebrate baptism, because they're a public confession presenting that we are one of his. He is ours and we are his. We actually can't get his comfort without publicly identifying with him. And there's a beautiful parallel here with the beginning of chapter 9, because the beginning of chapter 9, he looks at the paralytic, the, the young man, and he says, son, uh, take heart, take courage, your sins are forgiven. And then here he looks at her and says, daughter, take heart, take courage, your faith has saved you. Both of them, their real problem wasn't the physical brokenness. It was that the physical brokenness had broken their hearts. Their hearts were broken. You, know, you can survive a uh, you know, wounded body. A man can survive, but who can survive a wounded spirit? 
and he, re, he renews both their hearts and one by repentance, one by faith. These are the things that make us whole, that put us back together. Repentance and faith. It's kind of the holy two-step of living the whole life. And then what does he give each of them? And what he gives each of them here is the same thing that we celebrate each Easter, same thing we celebrate each Sunday. It's the same gift that he offers all of, to all of us. Notice what he gives to her is she thinks she needs a doctor. She needs a doctor to, love, to heal her, to help her. But he actually gives her a father who's going to love her. She thinks she needs a doctor. She gets a father. What she actually gets is a restored relationship. There's so much beauty and, and love in the word, take courage, daughter. Your daughter. You know, if it wasn't so healing, it might be funny. Because think about it. Jesus is probably about 30-ish, and she might be 55. And he looks at her and says, daughter, daughter gets the relationship restored. And that's actually what we celebrate. Well, that's what Good Friday is all about. That's what the cross is all about. It's about atonement at one mint. It's about the problem is that sin has separated and the relationship has been fractured. So when sin entered the world, the sting of sin is it now separates things that should be united. And what death is is a solidification of that separation. It's final. And so what he's doing is he's, he's ending the separation. First is separate, separated us from God, then us from ourselves, and us from others. Us from the world is fracturing, separating, and he's uniting the things that should be together. It's his daughter. She gets relationship. And what she doesn't realize is the thing that she needs more than anything else is not her body healed, but it's the relationship restored. And if she gets that, everything else will flow from it in health and healing and holiness. And her greatest need is also our greatest need. What is life? Life is not that your heart keeps beating. Life, according to Jesus, is you know him. If you know me, that is eternal life. You know the one who sent me. So she gets relationship. But notice what Jarius gets. He actually gets resurrection. He thought his daughter just need to be healed, but Jesus actually does him one better, he raises her from the dead. There's a beautiful story about how, you know, he comes in and he touches her. He lifts her up. Mark says that he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, arise. And then the kind of the comical scene where he says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Why are you have all the mourners here? Because it's been transformed. And one of the things, you know, is he raises the daughter up. He tells the other that his daughter, Jesus, is treating them like the loving parent who's going to protect them from something they can't protect themselves from. You know, after that game, they asked Mo Cheeks, like, why did you do it? Why did you go out to help her? And all he could say is, I have a teenage daughter. I have a daughter. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't just watch her. I have a daughter. And that's why I helped her. And actually, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's loving them like the Father. All right, so how can, you know, we experience these things? Or maybe who do you sympathize with most in this story? Maybe you can look and you can empathize. You can sympathize with Jarius. You know, what was driving him? What Jarius wanted was his child to have life. He wanted, he wanted his child to live. Maybe you can understand that. Maybe that's why you moved to this country. Maybe that's why you moved to this area. Maybe that's why you moved or worked so hard in such the way you do and are so involved in your children's life. You want to put them on the conveyor belt of success so they can have life. Well, learn. Let's look. And what did he do? What's the most important thing his child needed? 
His child needed to be in Jesus' presence. The most loving thing I can do for my children is to get them in Jesus' presence so his hand can touch them because when his hand touches them, they can rise. And you look at the woman. Maybe you can sympathize with her. You understand what it's like to silently carry a wound and a burden that nobody seems to see, and you bear it silently for years. What's her hope? Her hope is if I can just be touched by him, if I can just touch him, then I will be made whole. And so this morning, you think, you know, these two things, relationship, resurrection. If you wonder, what's Christianity all about? Christianity is all about relationship, relationship being restored. And it's all about resurrection, resurrection of your soul now and then your whole body and life then. So maybe you come here this morning and there's something in you that you feel like has died Maybe there's a part of your, a dream you had that's died and you need his touch to raise it up. Maybe there's someone in your life who you love who has died and what's your hope that one day he'll touch and say, little girl, arise. But what we celebrate this Sunday and every Sunday is the gift of relationship and the gift and the hope of resurrection. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your son's touch who comes to us in our moment of darkness as we're under the shadow, and when he touches us, what he touches can live and rise. So I pray for everyone who's come in this room. I pray if there's any wound that we know we need healed, that you would touch them and heal it. If there's any area of our life where we feel like it's atrophied and died, we pray that you would touch it and something new, something better, something stronger, something more beautiful would rise up in its place. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the power of your spirit. And we ask that you would help us to know both of those things. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.